economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I am Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder and director of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University and the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. With me is my two cohorts of Dr. Justin Clark, who's our Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and Dr. Peter Jacobson, our Gordon Institute Professor of Economic Education and Research. We thought we'd take a little segue today on some principles of economics. Um, there's some common fallacies that people make if they're not a hyperactive, rational actor like we try to teach our economic students to be, and uh, it kind of brings up some interesting situations. So, uh, Justin, you want to tee this up for us? Yeah, so today I thought I'd try to aim to get some clarification on what's usually called the sunk cost fallacy, Um, because I remember hearing about it in my econ classes when I was an undergrad, and I have to admit I still actually accuse people of doing uh, these things, or I'll explain my behavior and why I stopped doing something by saying, oh, well, it's a sunk cost. Um, But really, if you try to get me to explain exactly what it is, I have some trouble uh, sometimes. And it seems to me, if I'm being honest, I really just use this uh, criticism to criticize people for doing things that I don't want them to do anyway. Uh, (laughs) Like I'll tell my wife, you know, the cost is sunk already or whatever. uh, Or, you know, I'll explain why I've abandoned something by saying, ah, the cost is sunk. But um, so let me tell you. So the way I understand it is that the sunk cost fallacy involves... um, Uh, Well, uh, when you have already invested money or labor or made some kind of investment in something, and then you are trying to figure out what to do in the future, um, it's human uh, instinct to try to kind of count the cost that you have already paid or the money that you have already put into something as uh, being in, you know, if you're adding up the costs and benefits of the decision that you're going to make. Um, And uh, that... You, when you do that, it kind of usually will compel you to continue on the track that you're going on because you tell yourself things like, well, I've already invested so much money in it, or I've already uh, put so many hours into this project, I should finish it. Um, and I take it that the economist's hyper-rational response is, no, those costs have already been spent uh, or they've already been incurred. Um, the only things that you should be putting in the costs and benefits columns are future costs and future benefits. Um, You shouldn't even consider the things that have already happened. Um, And uh, it seems to me that like, as I'm the kind of person who, when I start something, I really want to finish it. So I find myself committing, if that's the correct explanation of the sunk cost fallacy, then I find myself committing the sunk cost fallacy all the time. Uh, But I actually think that makes me a more responsible person than if I didn't um, (laughs) commit this fallacy. Uh, So either I understand it and I commit it all the time, or I'm not understanding it correctly. And maybe you guys can explain to me what's going on. Yeah. So let's start. I'm going to, I think I might have a a little bit like a slightly different view on the sunk cost fallacy from like most economists, but let me start from the place of most economists. Justin, I want to use a numerical example to sure up something you already said. Imagine you buy some stock, I don't care what it is, some computer company, you buy a stock and it's $100. That's how much you buy the stock for. 
And tomorrow, you didn't know this, obviously, or you wouldn't have bought it. The price falls to $75. And so you've lost $25. Now, let's say that someone tells you and you believe them. I know for sure the stock is going to fall by $5 tomorrow. It's going to fall down to $70. What do you do at that point? Well, some people might say, or there's a temptation maybe to say, well, I need to, even if it's going to fall tomorrow, I need to just keep my money in there until I get my money back, right? And so I'm not going to sell because then I've lost $25. I'd rather take that $5 loss and then maybe sometime in the future, uh, it'll, it'll go back up. But this is an example of the sunk cost fallacy because here's what you can do. If you're certain the stock is going to, let's ignore like broker fees and stuff like this for a second. If you know the stock is going to fall $5 tomorrow, you should absolutely sell this, your stock for $75, get your $75, then tomorrow after it falls, buy it for 70 and you've, you've made $5. And someone might think like, no, I've lost $25. It's true you lost $25 on your initial investment, but you made $5 over the world where you held onto that stock and lost more money. And so that inclination to say, no, I just wanna hold on until I, make, until I make my money back. If you've ever thought about this before, uh, you're probably investing in an irrational way that's causing you to lose money. Your goal should never be, oh, I need to make my money back. Russ, do you have any thoughts on this? You've been in real estate for years. I'm sure this pops up in real estate a lot. Yeah, yeah, it does. So homeowners and the valuations of their homes. Um, there's other types of biases that sneak into this that can kind of complicate things too. There's uh, a confirmation bias and then there's uh, the, what's the ownership bias one where if you- The own, endowment effect. Endowment effect. So where- um, you place a uh, unreasonable higher value because you own it. Um, and that'll, and that's the one that affects real estate a lot. Uh, but yeah, certainly uh, with real estate, oh, I just put all this money into it. So I'm going to hold it. Or I just, uh, I put up a fence or I put in a swimming pool. Right. And so I, I spent, I just put uh, $10,000 into the kitchen. And, and so all of that is gone. That money's been, uh, is toast. And so um when you look at selling your house and you uh, had it listed for 200,000 and you put $20,000 into the kitchen um, and now you won't, uh, you won't come down to 180 at the time because I got a, my 20,000 in there. The 20,000 is gone. So you're always just moving forward with your decision-making uh, in terms of what are the incremental costs to take a step forward and what are the incremental benefits. And those are the only things that are relevant for an efficient decision. Yeah, I, I, Haley and I have lately been watching at night's Kitchen Nightmares uh, with Gordon Ramsay because it's free on YouTube. And so I've seen some of these episodes before when I had Food Network as a kid, but like I, I love that sort of show. Uh, but what I found is we ever, we always check after the episodes and it's get, gotten kind of depressing. Uh, is the restaurant still open? And I'd say about 90% of the time, the answer is no, it closes like a, a few years after Gordon Ramsay comes and quote unquote fixes everything, right? Uh, and so sometimes, and I really do believe this, I think it would be better for Gordon Ramsay to come in and say, hmm, I think the best solution here is declare bankruptcy before you lose another half million dollars or another $800,000. Uh, you know, sometimes people, because they've put the money in, they feel this attachment like, oh, it's time to get the money back. Uh, I really need to work to get the money back when, you know, maybe it would be better to just say, okay, that money is gone and I'm not going to lose my future money too, right? That, that's sometimes the alternative that you're dealing with. So that's financial uh, decisions. Let me give, let me give one more example that uh, is kind of a good one I've used in class. Um, you buy a $100 seat to a football game. And so the football game is four weeks out. And then in the meantime, another opportunity comes up that's going to be uh, a concert in the park that your 
your niece is playing in and it's it's $20 uh, for that ticket. And so people will often say, oh, I, I have to go to the football game. I don't want to waste my money, even though the $100 ticket price is gone. And let's just assume there's not resale. We could bring in a, a scalping type thing or unload it uh, pretty easily. But let's just say, uh, you know, your team are a bunch of losers. And so you won't you won't get anything back for your $100 ticket uh, after they've lost three games in a row. And so People say, oh, I don't want to waste my $100 uh, on this. But also what's happened is you've changed the marginal cost, marginal benefit analysis and that the cost of going to the football game now is zero for the ticket cost. Uh, you still might have some gas and some other incidental costs of going to the game. Uh, so now you just have to say, well, what's the marginal benefit of going to my niece's performance? Um, if that is $30 and, and that price is ticket price is 20, you have a $10 net benefit of going to your niece's concert. Or if the football game now is a zero monetary ticket cost, and it brings you $30 worth of benefit to go to the football game. So you got 30 with each, well, you go to the football game. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that it, it was a, it's a great example Russ, of a, a non-monetary, which I think is important to take a step back because a lot of times, you know, financial decisions, I think most people can kind of get in and be like, okay, that makes sense. I agree. If I'm somehow, even though this never happens, I'm somehow certain I'm going to lose money on the stock. Yeah, I'll sell it. But non-financial decisions, or at least uh, maybe like uh, less financial decisions uh, like this, or uh, an economist, Tyler Cowen, his favorite example uh, that he likes to say is that people should walk out of bad movies more often. Uh, and Tyler's claim is that uh, people not leaving movie theaters is an example of the sunk cost the fallacy that people go to a movie. They think it's going to be good. Maybe in the first you know, 20 minutes, you realize, oh, this movie actually stinks a lot, but I already paid for the ticket. So I might as well just stay and watch. And so Tyler says, well, this is an example, again, of the sunk cost fallacy. The money's already gone. You're not going to get it back. And so if your choice is between staying for this bad movie and hating it or leaving and doing something you enjoy or, you know, doing some work, making some money, whatever it's going to be, uh, Tyler says, well, you should leave. And so Tyler is like famous for he'll tweet out when he leaves movies. I saw a tweet, you know, when I was looking into this. Oh, I left the master. I think it was a bad movie. And so I left uh, in the first like 30 minutes or something like that. Uh, so this is uh, another example of the sunk cost fallacy. And I think... You know, back to my football ticket example, if you feel like there's going to be a little bit of benefit, this movie sucks, but maybe it'll get better. You have, again, zero monetary costs of keeping in your seat. Um, so you have to have an alternative where if you've already cut out an hour and a half of your time, uh, maybe you don't have a lot of other alternatives set up. So the marginal benefit of leaving the theater isn't that high either. I certainly agree with Cowan that probably more people would just say, I know this movie sucks and I'm, I'm gonna, it's going to be painful to sit through the rest of it, then they probably should leave. But See, I think that uh, I think Cowan's wrong about the movie thing because I think and I think that the difference between uh, like a stock analogy and a non-financial good um like leaving a movie um can bring this out more is that i think that um people who aren't tyler cohen and in general people who aren't economists maybe are more sentimental um and that uh what they maybe are factoring in is something like regret um and the cost of regret um so if I walk out of a movie, it is going to gnaw at me for the rest of the day, not being able to finish it, right? And um, I can give you an example. Um, when I was in high school, me and my best friend, Coulter, 
we took two girls on a double date and we went and saw this movie that we picked out of the a paper. It's called Waking Ned Divine. I'll never forget this. <laughs> we got about halfway through um, and it was terrible. It was a really bad movie. And uh, both these girls walked out, Janine and Whitney, um, they walked out and Coulter and I, uh, who paid for the tickets, uh, we were just like, well, we already spent the money. Let's sit and watch these. Let's sit and finish the movie. And you know what happened? It was a terrible movie. Uh, it was not worth the time that we uh, that we spent it. Uh, I would have rather watched something different. But here's the thing: I will never, ever forgive Whitney and Janine for walking out of that movie. <laughs> so uh, I think there, uh, when we are talking about sentimental things and not just investments, um, that a lot of times maybe what seems like sunk cost fallacies are actually just um, adding things to the balance sheet. Um, that yeah, maybe so, are yeah, some non-monetary stuff. So, so, so let me bring in uh, some a little bit more in-depth economic theory. It's not much listeners, but just a little bit. In economics, we sometimes think of this thing called a utility function. And what a utility function is, it's a way of summing up all the things that you like. The happiness function. Yeah, and, and the, the idea is what can you do that gets you the most satisfaction at the least cost? That's kind of what, you know, per dollar, you want to be getting the most satisfaction out of your quote-unquote utility function. Yeah, and so I guess let's take one step back and just, just say economists assume that everybody can put a ranking on anything, uh, but it's personal to you. So if, if you say, I like hamburgers and french fries, I'll give a value of 100 to me, 100 units of happiness. I hate the word utils, but uh, that's the other word that gets used in economics, but 100 units of happiness. Then we can put out, well, what, what, what about a, three slices of pizza and a beer? What is that? How does that compare? And so the, the assumption is the person can say that it's either equal to 100, the person's totally indifferent between the hamburger and fries and the pizza and beer, or it's 90, or it's 120, or it's 50. And now all of a sudden we start to get a feel for that person's uh, preferences if they give a ranking of a 50, then they like the pizza and beer half as much as the burger and fries. And so um, we're able to, to do that within the person, but we can't compare between Peter and I, our rankings. Exactly. And so one way that we could, we could think of the sunk cost fallacy, I'm going to start putting quotes around it, because I, for different reasons than Justin, I think, I am also kind of skeptical of the sunk cost fallacy. We can think of the sunk cost fallacy being a few different things. One is we could think of it as people are not doing the thing that gives them the most utility when they engage in the sunk cost fallacy. That's what Tyler Cowen is saying, by the way, is he's saying people would get more utility, more satisfaction in their lives if they left movies when they were bad. That's, that's what Tyler's saying. And I don't think he would have any sort of argument. Uh, he wouldn't argue with that. I, th I think he agrees with that. Justin might be saying that too, but I actually think what Justin is saying is a little bit different than what Tyler's saying. I think what Justin is saying is that there are actually things in the utility function, quote unquote, in other words, things in people's lives that they want that don't necessarily involve things like money. And so Justin used this word sentimentality. Maybe it's the case that people have this like 
deep fear of regret. This is sometimes called loss aversion. Uh, it's, yeah. it's related to a lot of stuff in behavioral economics, which is why, uh, even though Justin's bringing it up, I kind of don't like it. I was going to say, you're not even a fan of <laughs> no, behavioral no, no. economics that much. But, but the idea is that, like, well, maybe some people just like have this uh, anger at like leaving a movie before it's over. Like they really don't like it. And so there's a separate thing that people value that's called sentimentality that actually, if people ignore it, like an economist saying, well, don't be sentimental, just leave the movie. That's like saying, don't like oranges, right? It's, it's saying, don't like the thing that you like. That's ridiculous. Uh, you should like the thing that I like instead. Uh, you, why aren't you using my utility function, uh, which is comprised of maximizing money or something like that? Uh, and so, like, I, I actually think that's a reasonable argument, too. I do believe uh, in small amounts uh, people do have value for like these psychological things. And I, I do believe like there are some amount of people who are attached to the type of property they have. And, you know, when you're a kid, you know this, you wouldn't trade your beanie baby dog for someone else's identical beanie baby dog, maybe even if it's in better condition, because it's yours, right? And I don't think that totally goes away when we're adults either. I, I think it would be kind of silly to claim that it does. Yeah. Do you have something just so just to steel man uh, the opposition my point here the the economist can say justin you're not objecting to the sunk cost fallacy you're saying you're objecting yes. to the accounting procedure that's being done right uh, yes and that's i think that's correct right that uh, what i'm saying is that oh. uh, that the problem as i was stating it was that uh the costs weren't the sentimental costs weren't being included um yeah. If we just take Tyler Cohen's movie example. Right. And no, but economists, uh, we, we value non-monetary costs. So we leave, the, we leave the accountants to the accounting costs. And, and so that is what our, I like to call it economic art. Well, then you, you have to say that Tyler Cohen's wrong then. Oh, yeah. No, okay. I'm happy to say that. Yeah, no, 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 no. And, and I have another thing to bring up. Uh, this looks like a good spot for a break, but um, we haven't brought up really this idea of uncertainty and how you deal with that, with whether you leave the movie theater or not. And so I'd like to pick up for there uh, after the break. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place for people seeking freedom, justice, and human flourishing. We have a microeconomics course that's available to high school age students, uh, or at least pre-college, for only $200. Um, our next course starts June 27th, and we have a new course that starts about every eight weeks. So if you know somebody that might be interested in getting college-level credit for microeconomics, please contact Russ or Peter or Justin today. Okay, so we're back. Um, so this uncertainty thing uh, is, is certainly relevant and I think plays into the conversation as well. So I totally agree with uh, Justin. I've been teaching this for whatever, 30 years now that uh, we have implicit and explicit costs that go into the full opportunity cost of a decision. And those are the decisions that should be made at the margin. And the sum cost deals with is it something that's recoverable or not is the way one textbook put it that I kind of like. So if a, if a cost that you, something that you've already spent money on is not recoverable, then it is sunk and should not enter into the marginal cost uh, decision. And so uh, the thing that's relevant with uncertainty is let's say you're sitting in the movie theater and we've identified you've got zero monetary cost of continuing to sit there. Uh, but you have um, some sort of expectation on whether the movie's going to turn out better or get better or some, something's going to interest you. But then also when you leave the movie theater, um, you have a benefit of doing some other activity. 
And if, if you don't, if there's uncertainty with the amount of benefit that you're actually going to get with it, then that should be factored in as well. And I think people don't deal with uncertainty very well. And so if there's a, just to keep the numbers easy, a 50-50 shot of um, you finding something with incrementally more benefit when you leave the movie theater, but it's only a 50-50 shot, then if there's 100 units of satisfaction, 100 units of happiness of if the activity turns out great, if it's only 50-50 shot, then it's really 50% happiness is the expected happiness when you move leave the movie theater. And so any sort of uncertainty that enters the equation is going to reduce the benefits of leaving the theater. And I think that would play into people too, um, that just in general, my I, I'm kind of close to being a risk lover uh, from an eco economic standpoint that's usually not a good thing, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bigger risk taker than, than most human beings I've learned over my 50 years of existence. Um, but even I would have something uh, there with playing the, the risk into account of leaving. And so I think that enters into this as well. Yeah, I, and Russ, I think you're kind of playing into uh, or getting to my objection with the sunk cost fallacy. And I, so I wanna give back before the break, I kind of made a dichotomy there's one argument is that people don't really do the thing that's best for them and they are engaging in the sunk cost fallacy when they like stay in a bad movie. That's what Tyler Cowan is saying, at least sometimes. By the way, Tyler would probably say, yeah, people have sentimentality, but actually there's not that much. And so people probably still don't understand the sunk cost fallacy and would be happier if they did. So I, I think that's Sophie's argument. Justin, I think would be more on the side of, no, actually things like sentimentality matter a lot. And to not include them in our accounting of the costs and benefits. Because he's of more of a touchy feely guy than a space cold economist. Because, yeah, because he's less materialistic, I'll say, <laughs> uh, is maybe the, the better way to put it is that uh, Justin hasn't, uh, you know, spent six years in a PhD program being taught that you must view the world through maximizing material well being. <laughs> Uh, according to wealth. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think Justin is uh, probably right, but I actually think for the most part, uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't think the reason people stay in bad movies is because they're, they're sentimental. Just like I, I don't believe that uh, things like the endowment effect, which uh, we've mentioned a few times, to be clear, listener, the endowment effect is something like when you are in a, an experiment, people will say, oh, I'd buy that mug for $5 if they're given like a budget in the experiment. But if instead you bring in a group of people and you give them a mug and you ask how much they would sell it for, they'd say, oh, I wouldn't sell this mug unless it were $10. Like the same person saying the same thing or saying it, saying this different thing. That's saying that, well, if I own it, it's more valuable to me than if I just have it. My belief is that when you start making those numbers large, like $20, $100, a million dollars, things like the endowment effect and sentimentality go away. Uh, I don't believe people are sentimental about multi-million dollar businesses, for example. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't believe the endowment effect exists at that really, really large scale. I think it's very small and uh, affects people's behavior very seldomly, even though I acknowledge it exists. Here's what I would say. I think there's a third option, which is that people say they engage in the sunk cost fallacy but they don't really. And so let me kind of explain what I mean. Let's say that you are in a bad movie and you continue watching it and you come out after the fact. And I say, well, why'd you watch it if you thought it was bad? And you said, oh, well, I already spent the money. So I've got to, you know, stay in the movie. I spent the money. Well, it, it sounds like the sunk cost fallacy. It sounds like the thing that Tyler's Ted Cowan is going after. Uh, I think those people are wrong. I think that they don't know why they stayed in the movie. And so they come up with an answer that makes sense to them. Like I, I needed to get my money back. I don't know. 
Uh, economists are very wary of surveys, and I think that's why a lot of social science is really, really bad is because surveys are actually terrible ways of measuring what things are true. Surveys only tell you what a person wants to say. It doesn't tell you about the truth at all. Uh, because people don't necessarily know even what they think about things. I think this is one of Justin's uh, pr primary interests is that people can't always communicate the things that they even believe necessarily. Uh, so I, I'm not a big believer in surveys or trusting what people say. Here's why I think people stay in bad movies. Uh, and it has to do with something that Russ said, uh, at, at least uh, tangentially, is when you go to a movie, it takes a little bit to realize that the movie is bad, maybe like 30 minutes or so. And I think both of you have kind of touched on this, but what that means is if you're in an hour and a half movie and you've spent 30 minutes finding out if the movie's bad, you now have less bad movie to sit through than before. <laughs> you only have an hour left of the bad movie. And so the more you're in something, the more the marginal cost of doing that thing is falling. In fact, the cost is a lot lower because you don't have to drive to it to stay in the movie. And so when you made the initial decision, there was some cost associated with it and you spent some money on it, but now the cost of staying is much, much lower. And so why do I think people stay in bad movies? Because it's very, very low cost to stay in bad movies. The costs have changed. I think this basically dominates in most sunk cost conversations. I don't think there are many instances when a person actually is engaging in the sunk cost fallacy. I think it's just the case that when someone starts an activity, it's really, really low cost to continue the activity relative to starting it. Justin mentioned, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or before the podcast, he was building a guitar, right? Justin, you build guitars? Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, you, you could be building an AR too, an AR-15. <laughs> well, whatever you want to do in your free time. I think Justin does both of these things. Uh, and, and, you know, people might say, well, I, I already bought it, so I need to finish the project, even though I don't like it anymore. I don't, again, I don't think this is the sunk cost fallacy. I think it's most of the difficulty of building something is buying it and prepping the build and kind of learning the initial steps. The difficulty of finishing something, even though it's tedious, I think is a lot lower than of going through all the fixed costs of doing the initial things. So personally, I don't believe the sunk cost fallacy really plays in many things. By the way, it doesn't play in financial markets. Uh, if you could find a place where people are engaging in the sunk cost fallacy systematically in financial markets, you could make millions of dollars. <laughs> and so I, I invite you to prove me wrong. I would like for you to prove me wrong because I'd like for you all to be rich, all you listeners out there. Uh, but I don't think you will uh, because I don't think people really engage in the sunk cost fallacy in any systematic way. Maybe occasionally. I was once thinking the Robin Hood thing might have where you had a lot of investors come in that put in there there might have been more there but uh well GameStop still, some, GameStop is still doing well I that, know, that stock I, is I, still I, close I to hundred dollars I did actually look up that I was surprised so I, I had a student in my this is a great example I had a student in my management class say well it can't possibly stay but like it was twelve dollars initially it went up to like three hundred or something and the student's like it can't it's gonna go back to twelve right I should short it and I said well no not necessarily like why do you think it's gonna for sure fall to twelve I, I I don't know why you think that and so I think actually uh, maybe investors were right. Well, uh, I was wondering uh, if sales actually went up because GameStop was in the limelight and, hey, I own part of GameStop. I'm going to go patronize GameStop. Yeah. Well, I kind of wonder if it didn't actually work that way a little bit. And, and I don't so know I, if anybody studied that or not, that'd be kind of interesting. To be honest, in hindsight, we know for sure now that people shorting GameStop undervalued the sentimentality uh, that people have towards gaming or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I think that the investors in that case were right. And I think investors are usually right. So uh, so Justin, I guess my what I'm saying is I still believe people are mostly materialistic uh, maximizers. Uh, I do think sometimes sentimental, sentimentality plays a role. 
Uh, but I actually think that the reason we think the sunk cost fallacy happens a lot is because people are really bad at explaining what, what they're actually doing. So what are your thoughts? I think there's one more cost uh, or, be or benefit that gets back to what I started talking about with. I'm still talking about with. <laughs> uh, it's not even a sense. Yeah. Um, that gets back to um, what I was saying when I started and about my example. So one of the things that I said when I started is that I tend to think that finishing things um, makes me a more reliable and dependable person. Um, and that I will never forgive uh, Whitney and Janine for walking out of that movie, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think that one of the things that tends to be left out of uh, sunk cost or cost benefit analyses mm. is something like what people will think of you yeah. based on what you do. That's right. And if you are the kind of person who is constantly doing cost benefit analyses on all your projects <laughs> and abandons them whenever the cost benefit analysis uh, goes from black to red, you might be thought of as less dependable in the future. And um, if what economists say is no, 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 uh, the sunk cost fallacy, people reason incorrectly about that, then actually the fact that people reason incorrectly about that needs to be taken sure. into account when you do your cost benefit analysis. And so you need to think something like, well, actually my reputation might take a bit of a hit in this case. Um, and so I think that since people tend to uh, value dependability and they can know something like, well, Justin said he's going to do this thing, even if uh, you know it looks like it might not be in his benefit, um, I know he's going to follow through with it. Um, that's a kind of long-term cost-benefit analysis um, that uh, taking a really narrow view of cost-benefit analysis might not include. But uh, you know, the good economist will say, yes, yes, yes. But what we're wor what we're worried about is the actual long-term cost-benefit analysis, and since that is a cost, it should go in there, right? Yeah, that, that this is a good point. We could imagine like that whether or not this true is a different question, but we could imagine there's a world and there's two types of people. There's people who are serial like quitters, right? They always quit their projects, and actually, there are these people in the world. You yeah. probably know at least one. They quit everything they try when they start something new. Uh, you know, you know that they're going to be done in a couple of weeks. They really surprise you if they follow through with something. So that's one type of person, let's imagine. The other type of person is someone who generally finishes their projects. And so if you're person B, you generally finish your projects. Maybe if like a legitimate fear is, well, if I quit something, then someone I just met might miscategorize me as person A. And so this forces some sort of like society-wide, well, we've, we finish what we start, even though uh, like some sort of narrow calculation might say that this is bad. Uh, because you know you're afraid of being mistaken. It's like a signal, right? You're, yeah. When you quit something, you're signaling something about yourself. Maybe I agree with those uh, incremental assessments of my two colleagues, but I think some class fallacy still exists. I think it uh, those things get too much weight uh, probably allocated to them. I don't think it's a serious problem, so I'm not on the Cowan side. But I also I'm not willing to throw some class fallacy out the window. I, I think there's uh, people who truly hang on to things uh, irrationally um, by weighting the wrong type of costs into the decision. I throw it out the window because I think it's incompatible with how we view things as economists. Whether you are like a neoclassical Chicago person, which I know this is getting jargony <laughs> listeners, but it's a certain type of economist and you believe that everybody does the thing that maximizes your well-being, and you really believe in this model, 
Or you're like a person who likes Ludwig von Mises and Austrian economics, and you just believe, well, every action is rational. What both of those statements do is define the action as necessarily always the best option, given the, the circumstances. Yeah, and so notice how Dr. Jacobson can't be wrong with that. Statement. Yes. It, it can't be proven or overturned. That, that's right. So <laughs> ex post, by the way, both these groups, both neoclassicals and Austrians would admit, well, you can see after the facts, maybe you made a, mis yeah. made a mistake, but before the facts, yeah. you can never do the wrong thing. You're always doing the rational thing. Uh, neoclassicals would call this a maximizing thing. I actually think these two camps are saying something very similar without realizing it sometimes. But the point is the, the economic way of view is that we look at things and we define it this way. And so economics actually excludes things like this, just necessarily. There is no room if people are always rational or always maximizing. There's new, no room for something that isn't maximizing or isn't, isn't rational unless, uh, I disagree unless, you unless you decide you're a psychologist instead, which is what behavioral economics is. is uh, economics isn't right and psychology is actually right, yeah, which no, is fine. I but, agree with the philosopher over here that um, we have a, a good called dependability or regret or whatever that yeah. that is in a utility function. So yeah, but that uh, that fits. See, it still fits in the framework. It's still rational or, or utility maximizing in that in that sense. Yeah. So the reason I exclude this on cost fallacy is I acknowledge. Well, I assume that everybody's always doing the best thing given their options. And so, how can I explain the behavior of the sunk cost fallacy? And to me, it's when you start something, the marginal cost of continuing it falls. That fits in the framework still. So I don't know why we need to make this thing and call it a fallacy. Maybe it is valuable to do that. Uh, I actually think it's a pedagogical tool more than anything that here's this cool thing that you can show your students and like it might like put a light bulb in their head and trick See, them that's the light, but yeah. you're admitting the light bulb and that's exactly why we teach our students this, yes. right? Yeah. Because I think we make them better thinkers by thinking through yes, these I agree with issues. That. So, yeah. um, so I don't know where that leaves us, but I, I did want to, I know we're running short on time, but kind of a somewhat a kissing cousin that definitely gets done more, I think, than the sunk cost fallacy is just the di differentiation between variable costs and fixed costs. Yeah. Um, so if you're a business owner and you have a rental payment of $1,000 a month for your space, um, some people will incorrectly try to factor in the rent yep. for the building into their decision of whether to, let's say, uh, redesign the back entrance for the customers or something. And so, well, we, we got this cost, we got this cost. And then what, well, we better put, uh, that represents a, a fifth of the square footage. So we better take a fifth of a thousand dollars to attribute it to this incremental cost. And that's not right. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the, the space is what it is and you've committed to a rental payment, yep. uh, similar to an interest payment or a loan payment. Uh, those payments are fixed. And so, on your day-to-day -day decision making of should I do this or should I do that, those costs don't belong in that decision uh, criteria. Yeah, I, I find that that's one of the hardest things for microeconomic students to get yeah. is that why is it that some businesses will sometimes run at a loss? Yeah, uh, and yeah. this is the explanation why. I I do want to go back and I also know we're short on time, but I want to go back and just provide some credence to what Justin said with a short story. Uh, after. I didn't do sports in, in grade school, really. I did one, I did track for like two years, uh, but I wanted to do football in seventh and eighth grade and my parents wouldn't let me because I lived, no, I lived 30 minutes away and my mom was a teacher at the school and football practices were at 530. Mm. And so the thought was, well, if I do football, either we have to stay like four and a half hours at school every day until practice is over, or my mom has to take everybody else home 
and then take me back at 5.30, giving her like 30 more minutes and then take me home again after that and maybe wait for practice. And so we've added like four trips uh, like every single day of the week, right? Because mm -hmm. that's how practices work. So I wasn't allowed to do it. So when I went to high school, things changed. I was closer to my school. Uh, me driving was in the foreseeable future. And so I signed up for football. Uh, and this was a new high school. And I didn't realize at the time, but I had made the worst mistake I could have possibly made <laughs> because I met a bunch of people. And this is a small high school. Most of the guys in my class played football. I met a bunch of people who were meeting me for the first time playing this sport that I've never played before. <laughs> and if you know anything about high school football, especially at a school that really cares, it's miserable. <laughs> most of all the first week of practice when you're doing two days, I literally joined my first week of doing really basically any sport apart from a little track in grade school. I was football two days in high school. It was awful. I couldn't walk the same speed of my parents for a week after the fact. Like I couldn't even uh, keep up. I was breaking in my cleats. That was another mistake that I had oh. made. Uh, we would do tackling drills and like in tackling drills, the goal is like to hit somebody, but not to not knock them over so you can go a little faster. I got knocked over anytime anyways, because I couldn't keep my feet. I was terrible. Two and a half days in, I knew I never wanted to do this again, but quitting was not an option. The reason it wasn't an option is I know my first impression of all these people will be, mm, yeah, I, yeah. I quit this sport and that's how they're always going to see me. And so I stuck it out until I broke my arm like two months later. <laughs> Thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was after conditioning. And, and uh, by the way, I do think like on a personal level, I'm glad I stuck it out even apart from what people think. So there is something to the sentimentality thing, Justin. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just don't want to give it uh, too much leverage because then the psychologists will think that they're allowed to have something to say about social science. So. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening and please give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear and, want others to help find us, otherwise pass it along to them on your social media or emails. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.